You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Michigan Mobility Scene. This is our uh, first episode of the podcast. We are a podcast that is focused on the future of Michigan's economy and its role in uh, the transportation future. And, and ultimately, we want to understand what m- makes Michigan different, what we could add to the future mobility in, uh, environment, and where we want to go at, in order to make ourselves more competitive in the, that economy. So I am Joe Zane. I am a person who ran for state representative 2018. And I am passionate. I, I was born and raised in Michigan. I uh, really want to make sure that Southeast Michigan remains competitive in the future global economy. And uh, that's I, I, I want to make the, the podcast that I want to listen to. And we're going to have a conversation about really what makes Michigan special. My co-host is John Good, and I'll let him introduce himself. Thanks, Joe. Um, as Joe said, my name is John Good. I'm an urban and transportation planner, and I recently moved back to Michigan. Uh, I grew up here, uh, but I spent 11 years away. Uh, first uh, college on the East Coast and then overseas um, in Singapore, where I worked uh, as a transportation urban planner and then as a consultant. Um, so I am very excited to come back to Michigan. It's a crucial time for us, and we need to think critically about where the mo- mobility industry is going, where the automotive sector is going, and what are the kind of competitive assets we have, and really take a clear-eyed look on on what we need to do in the future. So I'm excited to uh, start this podcast. And I think that, you know, we talked uh, for hours earlier today about so many good topics that we're going to cover over the next uh, couple of episodes, I I would say like the next year for the amount of episodes that we covered. But what we really wanted to focus on for this first episode was a question that we thought was very focused, uh, like really focused the issues, which really brought to light some of the the questions about what makes Michigan special and where we need to get better. And that's the question about, you know, why, why isn't Tesla headquartered in Detroit? And there's, there's a couple of aspects to that. And I know, John, if you want to go into that a little bit more detail. Yeah. So, so as we were talking, right, the, uh, it's, it's kind of a question that brings all these issues to the fore, right? So 100 years ago, the automotive industry was created here, um, really in its, its modern form. So you would think, you know, Tesla, by right, should be headquartered here in Detroit. Why isn't it? So, so I think there are two separate questions that we want to tackle. Mm-hmm. First of all, when Tesla was founded uh, over a decade a decade ago now. This why, is like what, 2003, right? Uh, that's that's right. Um, so why wasn't it founded uh, here in, in Metro Detroit in the first place? And then given uh, a lot of other uh, kind of next generation automotive startups actually have been moving their headquarters to Metro Detroit, uh, does our, our relative uh, competitive positioning look better than it did uh, a decade ago? Mm-hmm. And, and what would it take um, to to attract the kind of talent and the kind of decision makers that would that would want to put um, a real uh, forward thinking company uh, here in Michigan, and and I think those two questions will shape our discussion today, and and I think through that we'll talk about about the state of, of Michigan's economy, uh, how far we've come uh, since the uh, Great Recession, and how far we still. Have to go. So, Joe, yeah. I'll let you. Uh, well, absolutely. So, the the question is the first question is like, why wasn't Tesla founded in Detroit? And you have to, in order to answer that question, you have to look at where Detroit was and and Southeast Michigan was in the era in which Tesla was founding founded. So, like in two thousand three, we we're in the middle of the the lost day, decade. You know that that meant that there was a huge contraction in the state's economy. Uh, even while other parts of the country were were growing, we were getting smaller. I remember when I was a high schooler, I, I graduated high school. You know, I went to the U.S. Naval Academy, and and a lot of my friends were going to U of M. And p- 
people were leaving the state. And I know even in 2007 when we graduated, uh, there were no jobs here in Michigan. And so people – there's like a di- diaspora of, of Michigan-born uh, highly educated, That's smart pretty, people yeah. going to other parts of the country. And so you think about the context there. Um, well, what was it about Detroit that made it unattractive for people to start businesses? And I think that a large part of it was that there was a environment where, you know, people wanted to become engineers. They wanted to have steady jobs. They wanted to be able to work for the same company for a long time. And, but that doesn't necessarily lend itself to the cult, kind of culture of entrepreneurship that was being uh, worked on in Silicon Valley, where if you had a great idea, you went for it. I mean, there are lots of people, I'm sure, in Michigan in the early 2000s who had great ideas, right. but they were not ready. They were not culturally prepared to start businesses on those great ideas. And those that were, heck, they moved to to California, which is a real shame. Yeah, they moved to to Boston, New York. Um, really, really, where, where the innovation economy was was growing, and and part of that is the culture, um, but. To be fair, it, part of that is is access to venture capital mm-hmm. uh, as well. So, so obviously the the California venture capital market is is way bigger than um, most. Well, by far bigger than any of the rest of the states in the U.S. And and that access to capital plus a culture that that rewards risk taking um, was the differentiator. And and I think that after. After 2000, after 2001, as as the auto industry kind of was receding from from the highs of the late 90s, mm-hmm. um, where where obviously profits had been actually very strong, mm-hmm. um, leading from 96 to really through the year 2000. And if you if you looked at margins of of the big three during that period. Um, it's a bit bit complicated because, of course, Chrysler was was merged with Daimler at that point. Yeah, you know, um, that's a whole other story. It's a whole other story uh, outside of the realm of this podcast. But um, but market share was declining, as uh, most of our listeners know, and and uh, the big three uh, American auto manufacturers were were retrenching. They were not investing in the future, and and I think there was a culture of of focusing on cost um, over the future technology that would really drive the industry forward. Well, and ultimately you had a uh, domination of, of, of several big firms yeah. and an idea about uh, risk aversion. So like when you have those people who are like looking for those nine to five jobs then, and who have really been raised from a young age to have steady work, steady income, mm-hmm. the idea of starting their own business to kind of go out on their own, try something new. It's not necessarily part of the culture. And I think that was a huge reason why, uh, well, why we were in that period of retrenchment in the first place. And also, when you look at when Tesla was being started, you had all these Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. Uh, Tesla wasn't started by Elon Musk, but, you know, it was really uh, moving. uh, He he jump-started it, right? Of course, as the lead investor. Yeah, exactly. And and, uh, then – it doesn't. It makes a lot of sense that it would have been the, those people who were primed already to start those companies. They were already in California, and so you you look back to that period, and clearly, it made sense why it wouldn't have been started at that time here in Detroit. Sure. So sure. I th- I think it's worthwhile. Okay, so you jump forward fifteen years. You know, yeah. what, 2003, 16, 18 years, you know, we're, we're in that time period where, you know, Detroit, Detroit is changing. You know, the Southeast Michigan is changing. And, and like, we are very aware of the fact that we need to change. We need to be better at what we do, at, at, at really looking at innovation in order to remain relevant in the future economy. And our, I, I really think that's at the heart of this this podcast. It's like we want to have a conversation about what it is that Michigan needs to do in order to remain relevant, not just for the next five years, the next 10 years, but for the next 50 years. And uh, so that, that leads to the next half of the question, which is, so now that Tesla was inserted here in the first place, and there are very reasonable. Uh, un, uh, there's a there's a very good framework to understand why that didn't happen. Yeah. Why 
is it, it moving here? And I, I asked that question in the context where we have two major brand new electrical uh, EV uh, companies, namely Rivian and Bollinger Motors, mm-hmm. that have m- moved to the Metro Detroit at, uh, area for yeah. good reason. Yeah, and, and listeners may know. Um, so Rivian uh, made a big splash uh, at the LA Auto Show last year um, with, with their very iconic looking EV trucks and SUVs. Uh, I guess there's one uh, in their launch, in their plan launch, there's one truck and one SUV. And it's RV1 and like, uh, I forget what that is. I'm not sure the the exact model model numbers, but there's one truck and one SUV. And and they had been working on this platform in stealth mode for for years. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like over a decade or, or maybe even more than that. Yeah, I'll I'll get the exact figure, but but this this company is actually uh, has benefited from the longstanding automotive expertise that is here, mm-hmm. and and there was a big, well, when Rivian moved uh, from actually they were originally headquartered in in Florida mm-hmm. um, along the east coast of Florida near Cape Canaveral. And, and, and just a, a little aside, side note, uh, yeah. the the name Rivian was actually. Uh, derived from the Indian River, where the uh, founder of, of Rivian uh, was was raised. Uh, so, River Indian Rivian. That's where it's like this kind of whole long thing. They had a, a name that wasn't as uh, as good, and so they put into like an it's algorithm. A good name. Yeah, it's it's, it's a good it's name. A good it name. like actually has some resonance. But yeah, that Indian River is where that comes from. Ah, um, so so Rivian was actually founded in two thousand nine. Um, so, uh, their headquarters is now in Plymouth, uh, uh, listeners, it's, it's right off Haggerty. So, um, if you're, if you're in that area, you can, you can see their, uh, main facility there. So, so the point is when we're talking about Tesla, we're talking about the next generation of automotive companies, right? Um, Tesla's uh, a useful, uh, stand in really. for, yeah. for that, that phase of automakers that we're talking about. And, and fundamentally, when you're talking about EVs, there are a lot of uh, capabilities that, that we have that are s- still very relevant. Uh, but but EVs, the, the building of EVs do take um, – that does take a different skill set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think given uh, the interest in a lot of – by these companies in providing kind of a clean slate uh, – in terms of, of engineering a new production process, engineering a complete new platform, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's that's very different, right? Tesla did pioneer that shift because uh, I don't know if you know Joe, but their original Tesla Roadster really was a Lotus. Well, yeah, I mean they they just took a bunch of battery packs and added to a Lotus body, and that yeah. was the yeah that, that was became... the original Tesla Roadster. It, they got a bunch of uh, laptop batteries. <laughs> like literally laptop batteries, right? Lithium, large lithium ion batteries, and uh, but of course the uh, that Lotus is a, a great car to drive, so it, it worked out. But um, but the transition now is uh, companies, these next generation companies with a clean sheet design that allows them to avoid some of the problems uh, of legacy designs, mm-hmm. and and I think the question that we're asking now is that given given that this is What's on the table? Mm-hmm. Um, what determines whether they're interested in in, in coming here to Michigan? Um, uh, does our automotive heritage uh, still matter as much? And in and in what ways? Well, I, I think it's a useful question to focus that that broader question, like to ask why why Rivian or Bollinger did move to. Michigan. Now, I would love to have like the inside scoop. I honestly don't. I, I've been reading about it a lot, mm-hmm. and and one of the things I thought was most interesting is that uh, when I was looking at some some websites about why Rivian moved back to Michigan, that's right. Uh, they they were talking about how most of the people who were designing the cars already they came from Michigan, and I I thought that was really telling. We had. An automotive heritage. The people who study here kind of have that in the back of their mind, whether they want to go into automotive or not. And so they get hired by these brand new companies who are trying to 
starting an automotive, uh, a brand new electric uh, EV, uh, electronic vehicle, uh, electric vehicle rather, company, and uh, there there is a certain magnetism there. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, we could talk a whole separate episode, and we probably will. But what brings people who are from Michigan back to Michigan? Because I I, I know a ton of people who are from my generation who graduated in 03 from high school, who graduated from 07 in college, who are, are moving their families back to Michigan because of family, because of their what they remember growing up. But like there's definitely some magnetism there. Like people who grew up in Michigan, they say they don't love it. They they, they love the, the climate of California or Florida or like the cosmopolitan life of New York City. But Something always brings them back, you know. So that's an important part to keep in mind. So, uh, and and I agree with Joe. I think this is this warrants its own episode um, because, and and this is true for a lot of Midwestern states that uh, there's a rootedness here that that is appealing, especially when when families um, are formed and you start to have kids. Uh, I certainly know that uh, when when I was graduating, I didn't intend to return, but. Here I am. Yep. Um, and, and and me too. Like I mean, I kind of always knew I wanted to come back, but mm-hmm. I w- I was going to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, and then I lived for two years in Germany and Virginia, and three years in Japan, and went throughout the Western Pacific. But you know, there's something about Michigan that I just love. Like I can't I can't quite put a finger on it. Like yeah. every time I go outside in the cold in the winter, I'm not sure that it was the right choice. But I you know. <laughs> Overall, like I know it's where I need to be. Sure, sure, and, and I think that um, I think that we will talk in the future about uh, what what Michigan will need to do. Uh, you know, we we are some of the the easiest catches, mm-hmm. right? In terms of talent attraction, right? We already have a have an inbuilt uh, pull here, but but for the future of the economy, we're going to need to attract. All sorts of people that don't have any pre-existing connect- connection to this state, mm-hmm. um, but we need to build a place that's attractive for their career growth. That's attractive as a place to raise kids, uh, and is just attractive as a place to live. Uh, full stop. And I think that uh, that again warrants its own episode. Um, but but these are the kinds of questions that that Michigan mobility scene uh, cares about. Not only the automotive. Uh, industry and the changes to the structure of that industry, but but how does Michigan uh, position itself to be more competitive going forward? Absolutely, and and um, I just want to put a finer point on that. Uh, so we, in addition to Rivian, which is an awesome company that made splashes at the the Los Angeles Auto Show back in in December, and. I, again, a whole other episode about how EVs changed the, the game in terms of transition from uh, combustion engine, how the architecture of the car itself will change. Mm-hmm. They have a front trunk, which I think is pretty cool, you know, because you don't need to have the engine in the, the – Yeah, the, the, fronts the, are pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of, lot of – uh, a lot of space there. So like uh, – but I do want to mention that like Bollinger Motors also uh, founded someplace outside of Michigan. It's upstate uh, New York. Upstate believe. New York. Yep, absolutely. Moved to Ferndale in uh, the past year. And so I, I think that there's a serious uh, – you know, so we need to like at least mention like why they would want to move there. And I think so there, there's a certain amount of – okay, yes. People who were hired to start a car company – a lot of them are drawing from the talent that that we actually are producing here in Michigan, whether it's U of M, MSU. The people who grew up around the auto industry understand it and are passionate about it. You go beyond that, though, and think, okay, well, what's what are the next layers? What is it that makes Michigan special? And um, I think that there's a number of things that, that really have drawn Bollinger and Rivian back into the fold, so yeah. to speak. And I just wanted to quote – um, from from a recent, uh, well, actually not, actually yes, very very recent article um, last week in Automotive News. Um, this is an article from Richard Truitt um, called "Bollinger Motors Gets Settled in Detroit." So, what he said um, was that uh, when they moved from from New York uh, to Ferndale last year, 
uh, the company has really been turning its concept, its concept vehicle of an all-wheel drive, kind of a retro-looking electric off-roader uh, into one that is that is production ready. And I think anyone uh, that's familiar with the industry knows that there's a big jump from concept car, mm-hmm. which is often kind of taped together um, in many ways, to a production ready vehicle. And I think that uh, emphasizing that capability to turn dreams into reality mm-hmm. is something that we need to to really hit hard. hit hard, lean into. Uh, it is it is our unique advantage, and I think uh, anyone following the the uh, story of Tesla in the past uh, two years has been reminded how hard it is to create a mass. Uh, production line, uh, even with all of the modern expertise and technology, there is a there's a lot of things that perhaps aren't written down. Um, mm-hmm. That that's part of the kind of knowledge ecosystem here. And if we want to produce uh, electric vehicles on a on a large scale, uh, which we will need to do for a lot of reasons, um, Detroit has to be a part of that that puzzle. Um, and and we hope that uh, we can tell that story uh, in the episodes to come. Yeah, and and I think that uh, it goes beyond electric vehicles. You know, we were talking about this earlier, and we're kind of focusing on Tesla as a stand-in for a lot of the future mobility industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that we thought was interesting is that Rivian has its headquarters here, but they still have a research and development arm in Palo Alto. And the, you could say the same thing for some of the big automakers that have been here for 100 years. Ford also has an office in Silicon Valley. Cruise, which was acquired by GM, has a California presence. And a lot of the software development that's driving toward autonomous vehicles, which will be kind of the wave of the future, whether it's Headquartered here or headquartered someplace else is is driven in that Silicon Valley area. So that's right. Um, you look at what is it there that they're bringing to the table. What is it here that we're bringing to the table? And uh, we we wanted to talk a little bit about that and like specifically what is it that that we have? Whether it's Rivian, whether it's Ford, whether it's GM, what is it that Michigan is providing that draws people in. Yeah, and and to to answer that question, I think Joe, I, I think to answer that question in a in a realistic manner, uh, you do have to understand the advantages of Silicon Valley, right? Mm-hmm. So, Ford has a large large presence in Palo Alto. Uh, they have a Palo Alto Research Center in Stanford mm-hmm. Research Park, uh, one of the original uh, kind of landmark developments uh, in the valley. Um, <laughs> obviously, very expensive real estate. Uh, but why why are they there? And that's to to have access to the types of software talent, types of, of, uh, of mobility uh, strategists that, that have located in Silicon Valley. And, and Cruise, when, when GM acquired it, I mean, there are some people from Cruise that did move Moved to Michigan, but the large extent, to, to a large extent, most of them are still in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you know Dan Ammon. I, I, uh, I don't know. So, so Dan Ammon, um, he he was just appointed. He was, uh, I believe, number two or three at GM, um, and he was appointed as CEO of Cruise. Okay. So he uh, he moved from the Renaissance Center to uh, you know south of Market in San Francisco, and it was viewed as a as a as a path uh, toward the top, I think at GM, um, it was a it was a strategic move for for him personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but what why why is that bifurcation there between kind of the software talent? And this is true even um, with Rivian, mm-hmm. right? So Rivian has uh, two offices: one in San Jose, one in Irvine, California, mm-hmm. that focus on on autonomous software development. So. Uh, even even if the companies are headquartered here, uh, what is it um, that they need from from that ecosystem? Well, and I, I think there's there's a ton of ton of 
things that are different there than are here. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, part of me that's the, the Michigan partisan. Like, I, I ran for office because I love Michigan. I want to make Michigan the best place in the world to do business. I want to do all this stuff. And, and, and then I look at Silicon Valley, who seems to have it all figured out. And I want to be like that. And I'm not sure how to get there. So, like, that's part of the reason why I want to start the podcast in the first place, to figure out how to get there. But there's also a question about whether we should play to our strengths or or try to drive toward some sort of uh, uh, Silicon Valley ideal. And I think that what it comes down to is that after years of having large companies, big bureaucracies that drive toward consistent results, it's hard to have creativity that kind of thinks outside the box. And that's kind of a cliche, but what it means in practice is that you don't necessarily have the people who are software developers who are willing to uh, go way out left field, which 50%, 75%, even 90% of the time, not going to bear results, but 10% of the time creates exponential value or drive beyond what we're having in terms of the quality of the software, uh, we just don't have that necessarily have that mindset traditionally here in Michigan because we've had such dominant players. And I think whereas in Silicon Valley, it's almost idolized. You have this idea of the company back – I mean – I kind of really think back to the dot-com boom, right? You know, you had, you had Netscape where there's this craze. You had this craze of people who are making these IPOs, who are making tons of money, and then they sold off and they, they became the the nouveau riche, riche of the this the, the, the Northern the California. Area, exactly. Yeah. And, and of, um, course, of course, that is how Tesla um, had startup capital, right? So Elon Musk – uh, of course, it was one of those people who sold uh, uh, PayPal to to eBay, right? So mm-hmm. that is, um, as I think, part of you know, the way that he's he's able to keep on. I mean, he he lives out that reputation for 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 being a serial entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So you plow the profits of your last venture into your next venture, and 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 he did that very well. Yeah. Um, he took a few hundred million dollars from from uh, the PayPal acquisition. To, to invest in Tesla, to invest in Solar City, and to invest, SpaceX invest in SpaceX, yes. And, and I, I mean, look, I have the utmost respect for, for Elon Musk. Um, I, I just – when you talk about that, you think about what Detroit was in the early, early 20th century. And it's not a matter of place. It's a matter of circumstance, Absolutely. right? And, and like you have a, like Henry Ford. I mean he was nothing. Until he was something, right? Yeah. He built the company that became Ford that was like the Tesla of the early, early 20th century. So there's nothing entirely unique about, uh, about Silicon Valley. But it, it's, it's important to understand what it really is that, that makes them special and, and how we can – Joe, no, absolutely. And, and I think that's really important to reiterate your, your point, right, that um, it's not place per se. It is – it is the the human the nature of human connection, mm-hmm. right? So, and and this has been said before that Detroit was the Silicon Valley of the early twentieth century. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the early automotive industry, uh, right before so before the automotive industry, Detroit uh, was actually quite similar to a lot of uh, Great Lakes ports, probably about the same size as Milwaukee, maybe a little bit bigger, mm-hmm. um, as a shipbuilding port. Um, you know, as a as a place to trade natural resources, um, but but in this crucible of growth, uh, you know, there was there was a lot of there were a lot of things that were unsettled, mm-hmm. right? So there yeah. were a lot of small companies, uh, you know, coach builders mm-hmm. uh, that were that were you know tinkering in their garages, mm-hmm. and and that's literally what we had, and and we shouldn't forget. Uh, that part of our history as well, and and of course, uh, a century of of corporate uh, success has has kind of made that period seem very distant. Mm-hmm. Well, it, and it's ossified our uh, the idea of yes. our 
entrepreneurial past, right? Because the entrepreneurs of 100 years ago become the giant big bureaucracies of today and we are faced with the innovative dilemma when we have the most successful car companies of all time. I mean, there's some some competitors. You got like Toyota out there, and you know, you have some German companies. But yeah. really, you know, there's nothing quite like the Detroit uh, auto industry of the mid 20th century. Yes, I, I think we we need to date that perception. Um, yeah, I, I don't think anyone is still under the the perception that that the Detroit Three are the the kind of um, the powerhouses that they used to be. I mean, they've um, we've all had a, a reckoning um, mm-hmm. of of global competition, and uh, the fact is that um, you know this has been talked about in, ad nauseum, in, right? ad nauseum, right? Uh, the kind of resting on our laurels, and and I think that well, I think we're beyond that too. We, you know, we are, and, and absolutely, I, I, you know, so we, we go forward, and you know, I think that Ford, GM, to to a certain extent, FCA. Uh, you know, I say to a certain extent, I, I love the FCA. I worked for FCA, and the the great thing about it is that you know Sergio Marchionne came in and he saw the value in some of the brands and, and really brought them forward. But yeah, uh, be anyway, proud. it's it's the most profitable company right now. I know it's like, uh, <laughs> hey, look, Jeep was the steal of the century. But anyway, yeah, I digress. Good That's job, not, yeah. exactly. But uh, in any case. Uh, you know, you, you look at what GM's doing with Cruise, what Ford has done with Autonomic or any of the number of the companies that they, they brought as part of their smart mobility division. Uh, and people are aware of the problem, right? It's But it, it becomes a classic, classic innovator's dilemma problem. Like where do we want to disrupt our current business model to make sure that we continue to be relevant for the near future? And um, so, like, that kind of gets to the heart of what we're dealing with right now. So, like, with Metro Detroit, you know, what is it that brings people here? You know, we talked about Rivian and Bollinger. Um, from what I can tell, so there's that that history of people who design automotive uh, components, who, who design cars, that a lot of them come from uh, Michigan, so they want to come back. Uh, but it's also just like we have the concentration of engineering talent. And, it and t- Joe, what, what do you mean? Like let's be specific when we're talking about engineering talent. Well, and, and that's, that's the thing. Like it's not just the big three. It's like we have, uh, we have the OEMs, of course. Yeah, but we also have a lot of the tier one suppliers, a lot of the tier two suppliers, all the ecosystem that goes into that. And, and that means beyond just like – Okay, yes, we know how to design motors, but it's also a matter of, like, understanding how to build cars. And that's not just the motor. It's the shape of the car. It's the ergonomics of the seat. It's the uh, suspension. It's every aspect of that that goes into it. And when you have someone who, like, builds a spring, we don't think about it that much. But, frankly, an entire person's career can be... Uh, devoted to the suspension of a car, which is fundamentally just like designing the right spring, right? So when we have that talent that knows how to do that already, to make a smooth ride that we take for granted every day, then that's here. And they've bought houses and they have families and they have high schoolers who don't want to move. <laughs> and that yeah. has a huge impact on the kind of talent that's available. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's important. Like we, we're talking about like suspension, brakes, that kind of dynamics. We have seating, interiors, uh, you know, user interface, like all of that stuff really comes back to, hey, we build cars. We know how to do it. And if you want to build cars too, you should come to Detroit. Now, counterpoint. <laughs> no, well, uh, so – so yes, I I agree with all of that, um, and and I and I am speaking from from an urban planning point of view, and we should be we should be rational about what the transportation system will look like mm-hmm. uh, in the future, right? So with and and I want to be clear that this 
in this podcast, we're both talking about electrification of the industry as well as the development of autonomous uh, vehicles and the the sharing-based uh, business model that, that we think uh, will arise. Eventually. Well, and, and, and I'll, I'll go ahead and put a finer point of that. So I, I, I like the acronym C-A-S-E, CASE. Connected, yes. autonomous, shared, and electric, and That's right. and and I, I feel like that is the future. You know, if you want to argue that that's the future, that's not necessarily like our perspective. So, like I I love the connected aspect. Like I know that the cars and the infrastructure and everything is going to be able to talk to each other in the near future, and it's going to have huge impacts for what we're, we're doing. The autonomous is a whole separate feature, which everybody loves about. Uh, to talk about, but I think maybe a little bit further down the line. And, uh, I mean, shared is already here in, in, uh, in Uber and Lyft. Yeah, and then and, and, uh, electric, you could see in Tesla and, and, and as well as Rivian and Bollinger as, and also what GM's doing, what, uh, yeah, you, what, you need to give a shout out to GM because honestly, uh, you know, they get a lot of flack for the EV one back in the nineties, but GM still has real, um, class leading, um, EV powertrains, mm-hmm. and and I think they're building on that. Well, and, and with, with with the Bolt that's being built in Lake Orion, and they just announced today the uh, a, a new platform that's going to be built on the same um, uh, a, a new vehicle that's going to be right. built on the same platform. Uh, that, that's a big deal. I mean, yeah. as as much as I, I think Tesla is a great venture in terms of pushing the envelope. Mm-hmm. There will be more people dry, driving GM EVs in the next, you know, five to ten, and, hope, and hopefully longer, uh, than than there will be Teslas. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think. Um, I mean, we can we can debate um, the the future market share of all these players, um, but but getting back to to the point of of actual vehicle manufacturing. So no matter what the vehicle looks like. Uh, in particular, whether that is a, you know, a shared public transit vehicle or, or a very, you know, a crossover or other kind of private automobile, the fact is that vehicle manufacturing, um, the, the components that make up the the metal box, mm-hmm. the powertrain, and yep. the suspension, and the you know everything that goes into that, that is what we can we can sell to to innovators is mm-hmm. that. Your vision can be translated into reality, into physical reality. Well, and, and I mean, I think you could go back to the, that kind of GM Tesla discussion that we're having is that, mm-hmm. hey, Tesla, if you see a Tesla, looks sharp. There's definitely some in- interesting features. But you look at GM building uh, bolts, and they are consistently of a high quality coming out again and again. Off the assembly line with regularity, whereas Tesla is struggling in their Las Vegas plant to, to make sure that uh, Fremont. Fremont. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, anyway, is there a plant in Fremont? I thought it was in Nevada. No. So the, 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 the battery battery is in yeah. Nevada. Yeah. So the um, uh, sorry, I don't want to get to. No, too it's okay. Yeah. The, uh, the the what is that called? The Gigafactory. Yeah. Is uh, east of Reno in Nevada. Um, but of course, the primary plant from Tesla yeah. is is Fremont, which is um, which used to be the old uh, Numi plant. The Numi plant, yes, yeah. Of course, which used to be the GM plant. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I mean, uh, if anyone's who, who's interested in the history, there's a great Amer- this American Life episode about that plant. I would highly recommend. I, I would have cited the same thing. Thank exactly. You. Thank you. Joe. So we're on the same page there. <laughs> um, but that talks about. Uh, quality and ba- that was back in the eighties, uh, late late eighties, early nineties when they transitioned from a joint uh, from a solely GM to a to a joint venture uh, joint with Toyota. Yeah, right. um, but I guess the point that that we're making here is that that GM has been and and all of the Detroit firms actually know how to build cars to a consistent quality uh, and with uh, a mastery of logistics and supply chain management. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's really unparalleled. The automotive industry has thousands of components that make up each vehicle, and and each uh, supplier that that you know um, you know some of them are extremely critical to the process. So there was a there was a case last year where one of the main F one fifty suppliers uh, caught on fire, mm-hmm. and and Ford had to reroute uh, parts 
from alternate suppliers, but they they kept the assembly line going, mm-hmm. and they knew how important it was. Um, they monetized the value of each hour the assembly line was down, and and they managed to keep it keep it running. Um, as far as actually getting helicopters to get the parts on time to keep the the assembly in, running. In, in rare cases, that sometimes it happens. Case, and, yes. and, and I know with you know supply chain management is not anything to to shake a stick at. I, it's it's it, a real discipline. Exactly. That, that has has with real expertise. Yeah, and and um, I you're talking about you know uh, someone catching fire. At, you know I know back in uh, the in the downturn, there's a supplier in Canada in that was the only person who built the consoles for the uh, Chrysler 300s. They uh, they were going to go under. And Chrysler bought them because they understood how that supply chain would affect their their ultimate bottom line, and uh, you know that's it's it's a it's an important understanding that I think Tesla has yet to learn about how to make cars consistently, and yeah. it's, it's it's really like goes back to manufacturing engineering, not just like engineering of the car itself, the yeah. prototype, right? It's uh, designing the assembly line. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, and that is a essential portion of actually building cars on a regular basis mm-hmm. every day, in uh, with without fail. And so that that's a um, something that, that that Michigan does bring to the table. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any question about it. In fact, those people at Tesla uh, that are doing it well are probably being poached from from Michigan. Uh, there's certainly, I mean, if you look at a, a Tesla org chart, there's a ton of ton of staff that were that were brought over from from Metro Detroit. And um, but but the, the ultimate question here, because I think we agree that the Tesla's really moving the industry forward in many ways, um, and they're getting better at manufacturing. You know, mm-hmm. trial by fire, really. Yeah. Um, because they've they've needed to uh, for the survival of the company. But but the question we want to end on. Right is that given the advantages that we do have, right? Would would Tesla or any other next generation company, uh, how would they consider moving to Detroit at this point? And is that an option? For example, uh, people suggested the uh, you know the the Pole Town plant, right? GM's Pole Town plant that they're closing. You know, would would Tesla take that over? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd love it if they did. I mean, yeah. and you'd have the concentration of engineering, manufacturing engineering talent to be able to to look. You could probably could reuse any of the equipment, but like honestly, you could use all of the talent. Absolutely. Um, but but so I guess so. So like, is, what what is it about the Detroit that that's um, you know not appealing, right? Yeah. Why isn't that happening? Yeah. So like, I, I mean, so there, there's a couple of, of layers to that. So uh, on the one hand. Yeah, the reputation of Detroit, and and I think it's it's definitely getting better, right? You have, I, I'm a little bit hesitant because Detroit has always been the city that's getting you know, the Renaissance Center, which is built because Detroit was undergoing a renaissance, was like 40 years ago in, in the 70s, and it's constantly the city that's on the up and up. It's getting better and better, but well, honestly, realistically, that's only been happening. And I've seen it firsthand in the past, you know, five, five years. You actually live in the city, so I'll let you. Do yeah, it. that's right. Um, yeah, for for reference, um, I, I do live in the city of Detroit, and that was an intentional move on my part when I moved home, um, because Detroit uh, is is getting better, uh, no question. And and I think anyone um, that's been, you know, here in the past decade and or following national headlines knows that that's, there's something happening in, in mm-hmm. the city. And, uh, of course, the, the Renaissance Center, when it, when it was built in the 1970s, um, you know, th- that was kind of a, uh, a huge private sector effort to, to, to stem the decline. And, and I think that we know that during the 70s, during the 80s, during the 1990s, uh, there was that inexorable decline, you know, measured by population, Loss and you know systemic forces uh, of deindustrialization. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I mean, and so going back to like why the the question is why why isn't Tesla headquartered in Detroit? You look back 
10 years ago, 15 years ago. And um, the there's a, there's a re- reputation that Detroit was like not a place you really wanted to be. Yeah. And uh, there's a ton of things going into that. And we could and probably will have a whole podcast uh, uh, episode dedicated to that. But like it's the reputation of Detroit. It's the reputation of the Rust Belt and the Midwest in general that kind of has this idea that there are no people who are innovative there, right? And and I think that, you know, when you, you look at someone like Elon Musk, who is a strong personality, who thinks that he knows what he's doing, and any suggestion to the contrary probably wouldn't uh, be met with, with uh, a whole lot of enthusiasm. It makes sense that he wouldn't embrace Detroit like someone, uh, like with Rivian or Bollinger, both of their CEOs, they're... I would consider humble. You know, they're, they're engineers who are focused on uh, their, the engineering aspect and kind of like cost-benefit analysis. They're certainly more under the radar. Yeah, yes. for sure. I mean, intentionally so, right? Yes. I mean, R- Rivian's been around even in the Metro Detroit area for, for longer than we've really been aware of mm-hmm. of them, them being there. So I have utmost respect for that. But like, you know, Musk, look – must must have done something right because he he's do he is like one of the uh, huge figures of of the mo- of modern society in in a lot of ways. Absolutely, but um, you know I think that probably also makes him think that he does doesn't have to like look at the data. He doesn't have to think about like hey these people know how to build cars. He thinks that. I know how to do it better because I have a different perspective. Well, I, and I, just to, to challenge that a little bit because I think – and this is uh, goes to the culture of California versus kind of the culture of the Midwest as it exists in the – you know, at, at present. Um, you know, Californians um, and I think the, the whole ethos of the culture there is, is about forging kind of something new and, and – what it has been in the past uh, is is perhaps uh, you know outmoded in mm-hmm. some ways, right? Uh, we should we should forge ahead and and not be be kind of held back by the by the conventions of the past, and and in many ways that's that's good because you do need uh, people that are unbound by tradition mm-hmm. by convention to push the envelope forward mm-hmm. and. And I, you will hear me defend uh, Tesla, I guess, on this podcast uh, for doing that. But but as we move forward and as we as EVs become uh, a mainstream product with with huge manufacturing needs, uh, Detroit needs to be a part of this this um, ecosystem. This ecosystem. That's yeah. right. And so so it's important to to think about the interlocking perceptions that. That Joe was mentioning, right? So you have kind of a Midwestern perception of, of cultural, uh, cultural wasteland. Or, yeah, I mean, I mean and, and like, I say that ironically because yeah, because we know we're it's both, not that, yeah. we're both from here. Yeah. Um, so there's that you know Midwestern uh, perception that that reputation. There's a Rust Belt um, kind of uh, perception that there's just industrial. Um, decline and that there are people stuck in their ways and that, you know they're you know the factories are are old and and not up to the task of, of modern um, production and of course we know that that's also not the case and then layered on top of that is are the unique uh, challenges uh, of the Detroit area uh, which uh, which you definitely know. Um, yeah. Well, and, and, and I, I do want to emphasize that I, I feel like a lot of these are, are perception issues rather yes. than like fundamental issues. Uh, when I've I've lived on the in D.C. primarily Virginia, mm-hmm. and there there is definitely the idea that that uh, Michigan and Detroit are are not places you want. To be, except the people who have actually lived there disagree with that, right? So I, I think that once you actually come here and realize what what the kind of lifestyle you get for for um, for the money for the money. I mean, I yeah. I, I, I didn't want to quite go there. I mean, I think at some point we will, but um, it, it's actually high quality. You know, yes. but 
but the perception is that that there's not the culture there. There's not the kind of in, uh, entertainment or, or like kind of the lifestyle that you want to have. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I strongly disagree with that fact. But um, yeah. yeah, no, no, and and that the, idea rather you know. the edit and the editorial stance of of Michigan mobility scene is that, of course, um, all of those are 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 perceptions that are just clearly false. Yeah, um, but, you, but we, you can't see us, but uh, we both have. Shirts that have uh, the okay. outline of Michigan on them. Oh, Great Lakes, yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, <laughs> so, but but there so but there are some other legitimate you know reasons, right? You have the the obvious uh, complaints that people have about weather, about the state of our roads. Yeah, which is legit. I mean, you think we'd figure it out as the person as the, as the region that had the first paved road in the nation. You think after a hundred years we'd figure it out how to keep them so that uh, they they wouldn't be ha- having potholes all the time every season? Yeah, but we, we may have a future episode about the uh, uh, governor's um, gas tax proposal. Well, you know that's uh, I have my own thought about that with road usage charges, yes. but uh, well, yeah, again, a whole other episode there. Yeah, but then also you. Um, so I, I think it's worthwhile to to finish on, on talking about so. Uh, the the idea of, of different kinds of talent. So we've talked a lot about what what Detroit brings to the table in terms of automotive engineering talent, like the ability to design every aspect of the car from both the, the motor, which may not be as relevant going forward, but like also the suspension, the interior, the um, aerodynamic everything design, else that everything makes up else the exactly. But um, software kinds of. Like we were talking about, there tends to be a bifurcated workforce. You know, even GM bought Cruz, and most of their uh, their software development, or like that, is autonomous vehicle facing, is in California. You look at uh, Ford; they also have a a software um, development effort there. And, um, you know, what is it that, that keeps us from, like, having that same kind of software engineering talent? And do we want to try to make a play for that, to say that we are the center for automotive uh, software, software engineer, engineering? Or are we, like, comfortable being the manufacturing engineering capital of the world? Or, know, yeah. U.S. at least. No, no, I think that's and, – and in many ways, I think – the the thesis of this show is that Detroit still retains its title as um, as the automotive capital of the world in in many ways. It's the greatest concentration of of automotive R and D. If you look at the Japanese auto industry, if you look at the German auto auto industry, they're spread out throughout the country. Mm-hmm. We are lucky to have all of the automotive companies based here. Mm-hmm. So, given that concentration, how do we build on that? And how can we keep attracting the people that will build both the future cars and the future software that powers those vehicles? And I think that will be that will be the ongoing conversation that we are having here at Michigan Mobility Scene. And and Joe, I'm I'm really looking forward to talking to you uh, about this uh, in in coming weeks. Absolutely, and I think that we have. A whole host of, of shows and discussions uh, coming up. And a um, lot of uh, guest interviews, too. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're looking forward to that. Um, and uh, I, I appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to Michigan Mobility Scene. And I look forward to uh, continuing this uh, relationship, so to speak, yeah. <laughs> going forward. Yeah, this is a conversation that will continue. And uh, we look forward to having it with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um Thank you so much for tuning in. Talk to you soon.